Hi, this is Michael Howard from Fuller Park Community Development. You're listening to Q4 Radio, Chicago, 1680 AM, and at Q4.org. The Mike Norick Show starts in two, four. How about, how about three, six, eight? Who do we appreciate? I'm sorry. Just give me the last sentence. Okay. The Mike Novak Show starts in three, two, one. Those undecideds can still break either way, but who are they? As you can see, uh, they fall into a variety of categories. Uh, Attention seekers, racist Democrats, the chronically insecure, and right here, the stupid. That is 45% of the undecideds, John. They are the swingest of the swing voters. And they, as they always do, will decide this election. That's a fascinating thing. Now, who... How do you break down the stupids? Well, ironically, it's a rather complex demographic. You've got your paste-eaters, your numbskulls, your nitwits, your f***tards. People whose head gets stuck in jars when they eat pickles. That's a surprisingly large component. People who lose arguments to babies, douche nozzles, tiger petters. Now, I don't mean to interrupt. Um, I'm not familiar with all the lingo. Tiger petters. Oh, right. Yeah, that's uh, people who uh, go into zoos mm-hmm. and uh, they, they pet tigers. Let's, let's, let, let's, let's push on. Uh, people who jump up and down on frozen lakes to check if the ice is strong enough to hold them. Shaved gorillas who've somehow acquired driver's licenses. <laughs> the voluntarily lobotomized, and finally, Cubs fans. Cubs fans. Cubs fans. Now, they're... Cubs fans are considered a subset of the stupid. Oh, absolutely, John. I mean, they've had a hundred years to figure out that what they want will never happen, yet they still yearn for it. And that is stupid. Yes, it's very stupid. Because the Cubs will never win. No, that's right, John. The Chicago Cubs will never, ever win the World Series. No, they won't. They won't do it. They've made God angry. That's right. That's, that's, That's what I'm saying. Live from the Genesis Art Supply Building on North Elston Avenue, just this side of the concrete-encrusted banks of the north branch of the Chicago River, it's The Mike Novak Show, still Chicago's only locally broadcast deep green gardening and environment program, heard every Sunday on Q4 Radio and at MikeNovak.net. Good planets are hard to find, temperate zones and tropic climes, True currents and thriving seas, wind blowing through breathing trees, strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Nothing stopping him from running for president, except for the fear of getting shin splints. Here he is, Mike Novak. All right. Mike won. Mike three. I almost couldn't hear you. All right. Stand by. One more time! You're going to wake me up. Oh. Wake me up before you go-go. I think i got to boost my headset. I, I'm not going deaf fast <laughs> enough yet. So uh, let's know. bring that down. My headset's just buzzing away like normal here. Is it? Is yep. it? Uh, you got the, you got the old uh, buzz going on yeah, there? Yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. Did you? What? Oh, oh, hold on. All right, I've got it up here. Uh, let's get number nine. 
Number nine. Number nine. Did you say you have the old buzz going? All right. I had to... (laughs) I've, oh I've, I've, got a, I've got a that, new... That extra hour of sleep didn't do you any good, did no, it? No, it didn't. It didn't do me one bit of good at all. Did you say you got that buzz going? Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. And the problem is now I can't even reach that button to stop that. No, no you can't. <laughs> and all we have to say about that is... Thanks, Mike Novak! Okay. He has a new toy. Everyone. I got a new toy here. Good morning. I, I figured out how to, to, to play these things in a different way. Uh, it doesn't matter because, you know, uh, what, six, eight, what are we, six months down the road into the mission here uh, on Pirate Radio, and I'm just figuring out how to work <laughs> the equipment here? Okay. Yeah, well. And, and wasn't the top of the show, was that amazing or what? First of all, to hear John Oliver and John Stewart, when John Oliver was on John Stewart's program, The Daily Show, uh, and I don't know how many years ago that one but but it's I I have played it uh, in every election when I've been on live radio for like the last four or five years because it's so funny and there's so true. even the Cubs part <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, even though they won there's there's something stupid about rooting for the Cubs <laughs> there really is um, and uh, uh, but the, the idea that especially in this election that there are still undecided voters. I want to give them all swirlies, okay? I just want to stick their heads in toilets and pull the lever (laughs) because how could... Is that what a swirly is? I wasn't sure where that was Oh, yeah, that's a swirly. Have you ever had a swirly? Never mind. Uh, It's it's college days. Okay. Uh, Anyway. Must be a Michigan thing. uh, No, no. Tom, uh, Tom, Tom, Tom Shepard. Uh, it's not just uh, you've heard of swirlies before. Uh, if you're talking about ice cream cones, Adam, wait a second. Wait a second. I, I did that wrong. Here we go. What? Am I on? Yeah, you are now. The Sorry. Only swirlies I know are ice cream. Oh come cones. on! Am I the only one who knows what a swirly is? No. All right. All right. I suppose. Uh, weren't you ever hazed in school? Come on. I guess not. Not that way. We did it differently <laughs> on the south side. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that sounds scary, too, to tell you the truth. Uh, but you go back to uh, that and the elections and, and listening on the way in. Uh, it's funny that uh, I had already set up that audio to play it on the show, but listening to uh, another station on the way in, and they were interviewing undecideds. Yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, Tom's eyes just now just got really big, as in, how could you possibly be undecided? Well, you want to know how? Tell me. Because, and I knew it, when they asked the woman what her leanings were, and she said, oh, well, I'm a conservative, and I went, oh, okay, now I get it. Mm-hmm. No, no, no left-leaning person is undecided at this point, okay? They've, they, there's, there's no way in heck <laughs> that you're ever going to, uh, elect that 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 ooh, that horrible horrible horrible. I don't even want to call him a human being. He's kind of a subhuman. The orange guy. The orange yeah, guy. The orange dude. Yeah. I mean, no, what he a, can't. He's not even a dude. What orange. what a disgusting <laughs> human being. You know, the fact that you would even consider that, and 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 because and and their their um, explanation for it usually is, well, we need to shake up. This country, you know how 
we would shake up the, you know, and they say, we got to turn this country upside down. You know how it would be turned upside down? Have you ever seen the Poseidon Adventure? That's how it would be turned mm-hmm. upside down. And people clawing uh, to get to the, the hull, which is now on top, so that, you know, we would need Gene Heckman to get us out <laughs> of the mess if that orange thing makes it into the White House. I'm not sure what my response is going to be if that happens, and I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I have, you know, you, you know, you talk about Donald Trump saying that I might not recognize the results if I don't feel like it. Well, guess what? I got my hand in the air. I might not recognize the results. I think you know? a lot of people will have their hand in the air. Yeah. So, which is just horrible because it's anti-American. We it have is. A former congressman up here, not far from here. That uh, is going to have his hand up in the air with his musket. You heard that, didn't you? No, no, I missed that. Is that you he, mean? If if Hillary wins, is that the idea? Yes, yes. And he does another a radio show oh, on another dear. station. Oh dear, there's too many. You know, the hit, that's part of our problem. Too many people do radio shows. You, yeah. you, you don't need a license to do a radio show. <laughs> Just like you don't need a license. Well, you need a license to get married, but you don't need one to have kids. You know, you need one to drive a car, but you don't need a license to have a kid. And that leads to all kinds of trouble. By the way, that's Tom Shepard from the uh, Southeast Environmental Task Force who's sitting opposite us this morning. And when we actually get rolling into this conversation, and, and by the way, I have to, the other thing I have to ask, you know, we mentioned, we, we played the thing from John Stewart and John Oliver at the top of the show about the election coming up. The other thing that happened this morning is every time I looked at a different clock, I panicked. <laughs> I went, oh my God, I'm late. So all you people who are listening now, you're late. No, you're not. It's not a, late yet. We flipped. Uh, we we gained an hour of sleep last night. Is what happened. But for those of you, thank goodness for the phone, smartphones that will just flip right over to the right time. I think yeah. it was probably at about four thirty. I woke up and ch- double checked the smartphone to make sure we had actually changed times. And and I, I hear from upstairs this morning, I'm working on the show, doing show prep from upstairs. Are you still here? It was Kathleen. Are you still here? <laughs> I went, yeah, it's it's an hour earlier than you think it is. So uh, so that I'm sure there's a lot of people panicked out there. And But it, it didn't matter that I knew I was right. Every time I looked mm-hmm. at a clock that didn't reset itself, I panicked. Yeah. And I had to check again. Oh, wait a second. No, it really isn't 9.10 yet, is it? No, it's 8.10. Okay, I can get out of here. Yeah, and, and, and when it got to be 8 o'clock and I was heading out the door and the phone wasn't ringing and Mike wasn't saying, why aren't you here? <laughs> That's a good sign, too. <laughs> exactly. Uh, wow, if we got a jam-packed show today. Hokey smokes Bullwinkle. Uh, Tom Shepard, as we said, uh, twice president they they keep kicking you out and then reelecting you, huh? Uh, Southeast Environmental Task Force. I didn't know some of this. Well, I know you're on the board of the Chicago Recycling Coalition. I brought you there. You did, it. and then I abandoned you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you you suck people into the organization, and you go, "Hey, Bye. I'm out of here. Right, right. I'm out of here." Uh, Earthshare Illinois Calumet Heritage Partnership. Where did you dig all this up, Peggy? The Environmental Justice Alliance of Southeast Chicago. This is stuff I didn't know. Like, Peggy's doing the research for you. Are, is this all true, Tom? That's what keeps us busy. <laughs> yeah. uh, but mainly I've known Tom uh, over the years through the Southeast Environmental Task Force doing incredible work on Chicago's southeast side. 
you you basically single-handedly have introduced me to the south side of Chicago. <clears throat> Excuse me. Good. And I and I appreciate that. I um, it's eye-opening. You know, if you, you, you've done a lot for us as well. Um, I, and not as much as you guys have done because you guys have worked on the pet coke problems, um, just all kinds of environmental degradation that has happened on the south side because of industry leaving, um, unemployment because of industry leaving, just all kinds of stuff. So we're going to talk to Tom in just a second about some good news from the south side and other news that it's like, okay, we need to, we need to keep working, you know, a reason why we need to keep working. Then at 9.35 or thereabouts, I'm very excited about this because uh, Steve Horn is going to be on the show. Um, maybe some of you follow him at Desmog Blog, and I, I get his articles all the time. They show up uh, in my inbox, and he this guy uh, investigates stuff that you don't even know is going on. I mean, I guess that's what investigative reporters do. They enlighten people and say, you know, there's stuff going on behind the scenes you need to know about. Uh, and today we're going to talk to him about the activities out in North Dakota because he has written a number of articles about uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline and the water protectors out there. Um, who have been doing that um, now since April, I guess, of this year and earlier in some cases. Uh, but he talks about uh, what the government has done and some of the security forces and um, stuff behind the scene that uh, behind the scenes that uh, are, is going to be eye opening for you. Yeah, he has a new post out today, actually, on dsmogblog.com. Um, talking about the helicopters that are flying through the no-fly zone and who owns them and which oil companies they're tied to. Yeah, it, th that's one of the things. we got a no-fly zone, except some people get to fly in the no-fly zone. Hmm. Mm. Just like when we had the BP spill in the Gulf of Mexico and there was a no-fly zone, except the company got to fly their stuff there. You know, the, the investigators, reporters couldn't see what was going on. The average citizen couldn't see what was going on, but, you know, Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. There's nothing here to see. <laughs> I am the great and powerful. I wonder if they let the EPA and other regulators at, check those You know, we out. will ask Steve Horn. Yeah. So he's on the program at 935. Uh, very excited to have him. Then in the 10 o'clock hour, something that Kath, uh, Peggy, hello, Peggy and I have been um, involved in um, for a, a while now is the Food Tank Summit. There's an organization called Food Tank um, with the goal of changing food systems all over the world. It started right here in Chicago, too, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and uh, we're going to have a couple of the presenters from the Food Tank Summit, which is November 16th, and we've been um, uh, telling you about it for several weeks, and you can get your tickets. Uh, you can still get your tickets online and if you go to mikenovak.net as a matter of fact you just you just go to foodtank.com and order food, your ticket foodtanksummit.com sorry foodtanksummit.com thank you but if you go to food tank you'll yeah, find yeah there's a link there too yeah foodtanksummit.com and we've been talking about how you get a a discount if you put in mike but now there's another discount if you put in 25 off 
250FF, you'll get 25% off of your ticket price. And Lisa Moon from the Global Food Banking Network, Chicago, will be here on the show this morning, along with Shana Harris, who's the uh, COO at Farmer's Fridge. And you saw a Farmer's Fridge just the other day. You were going to send me that photo. I, I, I should have put it up on the blog. Yeah, I was at the Merchandise Mart Thursday night, came around a corner. I'm like, oh, there's the fridge. So the Farmer's Fridge is a vending machine for salads and really healthy, fresh foods. And So instead of fast food out of a... And junky food, junky, junky, yeah. junky food. You can have a nice quinoa salad with some fresh veggies and fruit. Oh, what do you know about that? Uh, so they're on the program uh, at 10 o'clock. And, of course, Rick DeMaio weather at 1045. Rick's back. Yeah, again. Well, he was here last week, too. And he will, uh, you know, we keep hearing that this insane weather will continue. I think, Tom, you know what I, you and I have to do this week before it goes away. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Um, you right. know, get out the clubs and uh, let's uh, just one more time. One more time. I'm with you. Okay, <laughs> we will do that. So let let us get to Tom Shepard from the Southeast Environmental Task Force. What do you think of Pirate Radio here? Well, it's an interesting place, and uh, I had been at the previous location. Of when they were at Multiculti. Multiculti, Q4 yeah. Radio, yes. Right, and, and several meetings and conferences and seminars, uh, that, that was a, an exciting little hub of activity there. At, yeah. At, uh, and a lot of our environmental people had gathered there, and, mm-hmm. and uh, we met folks from the north side, south side, joined forces on a number of important issues that affect us all. So that, that was an important place, and you're... Your show does an important function as well. Well, one of the things we like to talk about is um, the peop- the good folks out there doing good work. Uh, and one of the reasons you're here this morning, and I think I, I've got my little cheat card. Here it is, which we got from the well, – you and I – well, you ran into Peggy and me uh, this past Wednesday when we were at the Chicago Wilderness Congress. Right. And there were a lot – boy, 600 people, pretty pretty fun – uh, great energy, and um, you introduced us to a fellow from the uh, Chicago Park District who gave us this information about Big Marsh. What's going on in Big Marsh? And it's going on today. It's going on today. It's been all over the TV news this morning. Has it really? Oh yeah, yeah. So must be a slow news day, huh? Uh, it, it <laughs> might be. The the Cubs are starting to uh, slow right. down they're, a they're little done. bit. They're done. Okay, N- nothing more from the Cubs. I don't know if it's done yet. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, they they've been talking about it and showing uh, overhead photos of the big marsh where they're going to open a huge uh, BMX bike park out there. It's going to be one of the largest in the country and uh, exciting things for the southeast side. Something new uh, for the Chicagoland area and. Uh, starting at noon today, there will be uh, uh, the mayor's going to be out, and a lot of local folks, as well as the park district and the people from uh, the Friends of the Big Marsh, mm-hmm. and uh, biking groups from around the city will be taking different routes to uh, join up over there at twelve o'clock for the ribbon cutting in the grand. The twel- it's twelve o'clock. Is the ribbon cutting? Yes. All right. So you get you got time to duck back there. And right. Do your thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking at this uh, card. Well, uh, what was the fellow from the park district? The, was it Forrest? Forrest Montes? No. 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 Josh. Jason. 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 There yes. we go. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I have his card got here. The over there. So. Okay. 
There you go. There, there were a lot of uh, Park District personnel at the conference. And were right. they, were they uh, handing these out and letting people know that Sunday is the big day? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, you mentioned BMX. Yeah. What's that a reference? It's bike racing bicycles. Nonsense. Bikes. Yeah, and, and heavy-duty uh, jargon. Uh, mountain bikes and things like that. You know, because I was looking at this card. It says uh, the southern portion hosts a 44 44- Acre bicycle park with jump lines, single track, cyclocross features, and I and I looked at it and went, huh? Uh-huh. Right. Anybody in the room know what any of that is? I have no, maybe some of our listeners can enlighten me. What's a cyclocross feature? I have no idea. You can tweet us at Mike now or write to the Mike Novak Show on Facebook. Uh, we even have a Instagram, or you can write to me, Mike at MikeNovak.net on the old you know, old technology, email. Uh, Not email. Yeah, well, it, it'll show up here. And I see that Mr. Turk mentioned us on Facebook, so there you go. Uh, I haven't even looked at his post. Uh, and you were on Bill Turk's show before, Tom Shepard. Yeah, a while back. Yeah, mm-hmm. when uh, uh, you know he was on Q4. So uh, this is all opening today. It's a big deal to have this bike park right. uh, in Big Marsh, but... There are some issues attached to it, meaning, and you and I talked the other day about this, um, and not to knock the park, I think it's great, um, you know, the idea that's being developed and so forth, but it's in some ways not the easiest place to get to, is it? Well, that's true. It's really a remote part of the city, and that's one of the things that we uh, we deal with out there is that we have large swaths of open space and marshland and uh, a lot of property out there, many, many acres, that it was just too convenient for dumping over the last century or so of industry out there. I like the way you put it. It was just too convenient, and yeah. you know, because nobody yeah. lived there. Well, that's not true either, but it's mm. just that, that it was next to the the factories, and it was basically, hey, well, why should we have to ship this elsewhere? Well, there's a, Hey, there's a parking lot next door. Let's just dump this stuff there. Yeah. I don't know about the parking lot, but there <laughs> were a lot of marsh lands out uh, there. Yeah, that's it. that was it. Yeah, marshlands. Okay. Right. Hey, it's just swamp. That's, Let's put the stuff in the swamp. That's exactly. No one will ever know. Right. That's exactly how they looked at it. <sighs> and uh, a lot of uh, very, very unsavory things were discovered that had been dumped out there over a long period of and time. And not just bodies, right? Uh, some of those, too, from what we've heard, yeah. <laughs> I've, yeah. I've been on one of your tours, and you talk about some of the mob activity down there. Yeah. And, because it was... A lot of the area is isolated. That's right. And still is. I mean, Pretty you know, and now is. it's like overtaken with Phragmites, and those are like 10 feet tall, and you can hide a lot of activity down there. That's for sure. They've been measured up to 14 feet tall oh out there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty remote, and we're working on ways to uh, uh, find uh, better uh, access to the Big Marsh area back there. I say helicopter people in. Uh, that would be just... I'm sorry. Yeah. I, shouldn't, I should just shut up, shouldn't I? <laughs> uh, but what you, you talked to me yesterday about you can get there like 103rd, and then you have to go all the way down to 130th? Well, there's, there's two ways to approach it. One is from the north, from 103rd Street, and another would be from the east, Torrance Avenue, uh, at roughly 122nd Street, um, which doesn't, I mean, those are both really out in the middle of, uh, of a lot of nothing. Uh, but a hundred don't hold back, Tom. Yeah, uh, and you are a South Side guy, so you know. 
Yeah, there, there have been a number of times when I've been out there and, and uh, we, we had hikes and, and bike rides and things like that, and invariably we'll have somebody that's, that's stuck out there uh, close but hasn't been able to exactly find the place. So mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I think with the uh, mayor coming out there today and a lot of city officials, they'll be looking very closely at that issue uh, the Active Transportation Agency has been working on this. Uh, oh, good. To try to find pedestrian and uh, public transportation options and bicycle well, options are, to get there. Are there public transportation options to get to Big Marsh? Man, it's uh, really pretty bad. Uh, the closest you can get on public transportation is about uh, a mile and a half to two miles away. Which isn't too bad if you have your bike, because it's a straight shot. Right. Well, and, and, you know, that's kind of the idea here, isn't it? Part of it, anyway. It is, yeah. Now, this is going to be... But for for pedestrians, it's not quite as easy. Right, that's for sure. Yeah. 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 But you've got to be um, happy with the idea that the, the some money has come this way, some attention has come this way, the park, Big Marsh, is, is being um, improved, the... The downside is is what's next to it. As you've pointed out to me, Big Marsh is adjacent to Lake Calumet. And and, and last year, I remember on Earth Day, you, we had... In fact, I have a photo on the blog of you on Earth Day all bundled up because, man, it was cold that day. Oh, yeah. We went to, in 2015, um, an Earth Day walk along Lake Calumet. Right. The idea being, when you look around the Lake Calumet area, there's big old barbed wire fence that surrounds it. What's the story right now with Lake Calumet? Yeah, that's uh, uh, concertina wire, that that round type. It makes it look like there's a federal prison on that property. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there are so many people because Lake Calumet has been closed off from from the rest of the world pretty much by this fence and berms. Uh, So many people, including people in the neighborhood, don't even know that there's a lake back there. Some might not know that there's a golf course and uh, over a thousand acres of open space. I bet space. more people know there's a golf course because that's that's a pretty fancy golf course there. That's a pretty fancy golf course built on top of dumps. And a landfill. Well, right. you know, and I have golfed on out in uh, Northbrook. Willow Hill Golf mm-hmm. Course is built on a landfill. That one's much higher, hmm. um, and it's I think it's the highest point. In the northern part of the state, uh, you can see downtown Chicago from Willow Hill Golf Course. And yeah. but you know you're golfing, and they've got these little areas where they're releasing methane yeah. and stuff like that. You it's, can you just have this flame coming up next to you when you're up there. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to be careful where you throw your golf clubs. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also on another side of the Big Marsh area is uh, two large landfills and. Uh, uh, with hazardous waste inside. Mm. And uh, then we have an area called the Cluster Sites, which has been kind of set aside by the EPA as a Superfund site that um, uh, they've done a certain amount of remediation over there, but a, a lot of uh, fill and covering up and not quite sure what's going to happen with that property. So the whole area, uh, many, many acres out there have been uh, dumped upon and abused and degraded, as you pointed out. So uh, this is just one section that's uh, being improved now at Big Marsh, and we're working on getting Lake Calumet open to the public and uh, ultimately to have some remediation done over there, some shoreline improvement, some removal of those invasive species that you mentioned and others. Uh, 
Uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful, remarkable place that is so hidden away and so unknown and unused by the public. Well, uh, part of the problem, as you've pointed out to me in the past, is that it was on a track to be improved and open to the public, and then we had an election, right? And for you folks, uh, thinking you're not going to vote on Tuesday, first of all, I don't want to ever talk to you. I don't want to know who you are. (laughs) Uh, Second, uh, elections have consequences, and one of the ones was in Illinois Mm -hmm. because uh, uh, Governor Pat Quinn had been out there, and he was all for opening it up, and it sort of stalled when uh, Governor Rauner came into office, didn't it? That's true. It, um, we had a deal, and we had a, a press conference out there in October of 2014 with the Governor Quinn at the time, and uh, uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel was out there, a host of public officials, environmentalists, conservationists, bird watchers, uh, city people, uh, other public officials all came together out there to announce the uh, purchase of 682 acres, I believe was the number, and uh, uh, we had a deal that the, that property was going to go to the IDNR. And um, unfortunately, a month later, there was an election that uh, Governor Quinn, as you pointed out, uh, was uh, deposed. He lost that election, close election. And uh, once the new governor came in, he announced that the state is broke and that deal would not go forward. The IDNR has pulled out completely. Mm. Well, the IDNR has its own issues uh, at the moment, too. I mean, as, as does every agency in the state, because um, there has been <laughs> no budget for, what are, we, what are we going on now, two and a half years or something, or yeah. two years? Yes, yes. Uh, hmm. Okay. That's, welcome to our great state of Illinois. Hmm. Um, so how do you move that forward at this point? I, I imagine you're lobbying the governor and trying to get this back on track. Yeah. In fact, this week, and you mentioned us being out on Earth Day out there. We've done that for the past five years or so, annually brought uh, uh, folks out there to see and school groups to uh, be able to enjoy the outdoors there and the wildlife and, and uh, just the open spaces. Uh, this Thursday, we're bringing a group out there of public officials, agency people, funders. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah, and you would be invited if you'd like to uh, come Yeah, there. yeah, send me uh, that information, Tom. Yeah, I will indeed. Uh, so we can open the eyes of, uh, we have to resurrect that deal that we had yeah. in 2014, kind of starting at uh, a new point. The, the governor, you know, in all fairness, we, we haven't closed the door in working with the governor's office. Uh, I think it took them a while to... Uh, get their legs down in Springfield and mm-hmm. appoint a new director of the IDNR. And uh, so we're expecting to uh, get in and talk with those folks. Uh, but right now we're building our advocacy and making sure that people still uh, have uh, know that we're working on getting that area open to the public. We're looking at the possibility of uh, kayaks out there, canoes, boat rentals, hiking, fishing, uh, bird watching. Uh, nature, uh, enjoyment, and um, it's it's just a wonderful, great spot out there that's really fallen behind uh, other places that have been improved. Yeah, there's no reason why that couldn't be improved. I mean, it does have a checkered past, but it's not the lake's fault, yeah, right. obviously, <laughs> and right. it's it's a fraction of the size it once was. Uh, the lake, yeah, the lake has been reduced and reconfigured uh, 
hardly recognizable as an actual lake out there. But it's still very, very useful and, and uh, healthy. Uh, a lot of fish out there. Uh, do, pe- uh, do people go fishing there? Yeah. yeah. Uh, just the other day, we were able to take a ride on a golf cart all throughout the area to uh, uh, prep for this tour that we're having on November 10th mm-hmm. and uh, to look for different ways of access across the lake. Uh, so we're looking at bridges or a causeway and uh, different options that we have for that. Um, and there were fishermen out there, and they were catching. We asked them. We could call out to them from the shoreline, and they yeah. said that they're catching perch pretty uh, abundantly. So uh, what did I know? <laughs> <laughs> what, you don't go perch fishing out there? Uh, <laughs> if I get the opportunity, I'd rather play a round of golf right now and, and let, right the fish, let the fish have the water to themselves. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of with you there. Uh, do you have any idea of uh, other species in the lake, though? Oh, yeah, yeah. They've had bass tournaments out there in the past, uh, so there are bass out there. Uh, these guys talked a lot about uh, carp that hit, carp and, carp and catfish. Um, of course. Yeah. Uh, somebody caught a, uh, a large northern out there. Uh, really? That, that was posted, I think, last year. Yeah. Because there, there is, uh, it is connected to... It's connected to Lake, Lake Michigan, Michigan, right? Actually, yeah, so, so some of those uh, fish can sneak yeah. in and when they're trying to get away from the Asian carp in Lake Michigan, right? Is uh-huh. that the idea? Yes. This article says even Chinook salmon in the fall. Well, they, they work their way up the river from what I've understood. Uh, they work their way up so they can spawn. and uh, Trying to spawn in the steel mills, but the steel mills are gone. They are incredibly determined to do their thing. Says <laughs> <laughs> the lake holds large and smallmouth bass, yellow and white perch, crappy bluegills, catfish, and more. In the fall, you'll see Chinook. Yeah. So Amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh before I let you go, what else uh, do you want to tell uh, people about that the SETF is involved with? Well, uh, we're also working on open spaces along the Calumet River. Up to this point, the Calumet River has been uh, considered zoned industrial, mm-hmm. and that was the only uh, purpose that it uh, was used for. So the residents in the area had no public access to the river right in their backyards. And it was Isn't just, that something? Well, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of the Chicago River the same way. For you know, I've right. always you know, and I talk about the, the intro of my show. We're on the concrete encrusted banks of the North Branch of the Chicago River, right. and it's true. It's what it's what we did over the last century or so. Is it's like first of all, you 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 build your company there, and you kick off all the people, the the the, the peasantry, mm-hmm. and then you then you pave everything over right up to and then you put a pipe and you and you dump stuff in it um this is this is how we've treated our rivers especially in urban areas right. and the public has no access or any say over you know and and that's the shame of the 20th century is that we took our public waterways and we removed the people from them and we gave them no options and we polluted them and then we wonder why it's tough to get good clean water mm-hmm. yeah well, it's, it's a good thing that uh, maybe we're turning the corner there. Uh, the city has an initiative, the two rivers, Chicago's two mm-hmm. rivers. That's the uh, Chicago River and the Calumet River. A lot of attention has been given to the Chicago River over the past few years and a lot of improvements, a uh, uh, big uh, development over at Ping Tom Park on the South Branch, and then uh, you have um, uh, nice parks that are being created along the North Shore. And 
So uh, you guys have worked, uh, you know, SETF has worked really hard on water quality as well. That's the, the, some of the main issues you work on. Oh yeah, yeah. Especially with the, you know, uh, all along the river we have these bulk material handling places, mm -hmm. such as Petco. Yeah. And, What's yeah. the story on that these days? It's gotten a little bit better, Mike, and uh, we've worked long and hard on it, and it took a while before we could get all the governmental agencies to jump on it. We finally got... Uh, um, One of the uh, operations shut down, didn't it? One of them, yeah. In fact, uh, uh, two of them have shut down. Uh, the Koch brothers operated two big plants out there, and they shut one down entirely. And the other one, they have uh, changed their business model where they have direct uh, transfer now from the barges and the uh, uh, trucks that are bringing in the rail, mostly, mm -hmm. mostly Petco coming in by rail. But now it's done in a confined area so that uh, they no longer have those big, huge piles on the property. Uh, so that's uh, that's been a real benefit to the community. Stuff isn't blowing off quite as much as it had been. Is it, is it contained now? I mean, did they build uh, uh, facilities indoors? No, that was uh, that one was one of the uh, what they were right. thinking of doing. One of the options, I guess. Yeah, they were going to invest a hundred million dollars on a big, huge. I don't know how many airplane hangar. <laughs> yeah, it was like that. Uh, but they chose to do this direct, uh, d direct. Um, transit now from the rail mostly that yeah. comes in and goes right on to big ships that take it away uh unfortunately we'd just like to see it gone all together uh, yeah. that hasn't happened yet and we'd like to be weaned from the tar sands that are coming into the refineries and and producing all this pet coke yeah and uh, that's again an ongoing battle just one of many uh by the southeast environmental task force and if you want information and of course you welcome members, uh, people uh, who want to get on board and, and help out and, and revitalize the southeast side of Chicago. And I'm just uh, amazed at the tenacity of the people you work with. Um, you can go to setaskforce.org. Uh, you've got Facebook page, uh, Southeast Environmental Task Force Facebook. You've got a blog. It's, uh, it's all out there. You even got a new logo that you got the other year, so that's good. Right, yeah. Um, well, Tom Shepard, thank you so much. I know you want to get going and get to uh, Marsh, Big Marsh, Big Marsh, Big Marsh Park, uh, and the, the big opening. Folks want to get down there. Uh, it's You say noon today? Noon uh, today. And yeah. it's uh, 11, okay, you Southsiders have a way of doing the addresses. What is it? Right. What does it say? One fifteen ninety nine. Yeah, one fifteen ninety nine. Is that right. how you say it? Yeah, we can always tell an out of towner or a north sider <laughs> uh, when. No they're... kidding, because you know, <laughs> you, there, no city should have more than four digits in an address. All right. 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 Um, well, actually, that's not true. I used to live at two seven four eight one Cosgrove Drive in Warren, Michigan. So, wow. uh, but uh, eleven. One fifteen ninety nine. Right. I don't understand how this works, but that's okay. Uh, and that's today at noon. Bring your bike. Yep. Because uh, maybe you can challenge Rahm Emanuel to a race or something. Ooh, I'll, be I'll bet he'll have a bike there. I know cross-lane jumping or something yeah. with Rahm. Photo op. Uh -huh. I know he's going to do a photo op. He thing. should. Yeah. Uh -huh. All right. We got to roll. Uh, Tom, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, you're welcome anytime. Do, do come back uh, when you have more issues to discuss. Thanks for this opportunity. Uh, my pleasure. Now, do you have your November-December issue of Chicagoland Gardening magazine handy? Well... I have one in my hot little hands, which are actually bigger than Donald Trump's. But, uh, and it features a bunch of great articles, as always. But at this time of year, 
I take out my frustrations on Xmas by coming up with less than flattering lyrics to, well, let's face it, pretty dippy holiday carols. For instance, uh, here's one that uh, I call, I wish I had a manual sung to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Go something like this. I wish I had a manual. My pruning skills are really not so swell. I mourn the hack job I started here until the tree guys and their saws appear. Recut, recut with massive decibel. I should have found a manual. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank well, it you sounds much. much better than when you read it. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. For some people, they, they, they would prefer to read it than they have me sing it. Anyway, Chicagoland Gardening Magazine, a publication of state-by-state state gardening magazines. Go to chicagolandgardening.com. But if you're in other parts of the Midwest or the South, try one of the 21 magazines in those regions by going to statebystategardening.com. Or call 888-265-3600. 888 888- Two six five three six zero zero. Did you know Chicagoans are getting healthier all the time? Hi, I'm Peggy, and I know this is true because for six years I've been publishing Natural Awakening, Chicago's greenest and healthiest magazine. And if you want your message to reach this growing market, you do need to get your business in front of our readers. Why? Because our advertisers tell us that our targeted readers are committed to improving their health and ready to take action. That's more than 80,000 people in Chicagoland who will respond to your message. They're looking for holistic wellness practitioners, integrative doctors and dentists, nutritionists, health coaches, yoga instructors, even home improvement and landscape experts. Natural Awakenings is a free monthly magazine available in more than 1,100 locations throughout Cook, Lake, and McHenry counties. Call me today to expand your market and grow your business. 847-858-3697. That's 847-858-3697. Natural Awakenings. Feel good. Live simply. Laugh more. Looking for a housing investment that can pay big dividends? Remodel your kitchen or bathroom. You'll freshen up your home and add value to it, too. Trust DR Services Unlimited, 847-998-1687 for all your remodeling needs. Kitchens, bathrooms, master suites, and more. Rated A-plus by the Better Business Bureau and recommended on Angie's List. DR is a proud member of NARI. DR provides exceptional quality at a fair price. Contact DR at 847-998-1687 or at RestoreTheNorthShore.com. This is Peggy Malecki of Natural Awakenings Magazine for Chicago Wilderness. You can friend a person on social media, but how do you friend a native plant or animal that's in danger of going extinct? 12 Animals in 12 Weeks is a campaign to support critical species and their habitats in our region. There are more than a half million acres of protected nature in the Chicago area. Sadly, that's not enough to keep key plant and animal life from disappearing. Friend a critical species today. Go to chicagowilderness.org slash species. I kind of thought that this would be mm-hmm. somewhat appropriate. I don't know if it's, um, you know. And, and, then, and then after I put the music in, I thought, you know, maybe 
I'm insulting somebody. I don't know. <laughs> this is everybody's very sensitive about um, certain issues and how they want to be represented. So that's, uh, but that's neither here nor there because I just want to bring in Steve Horn. Steve, are you there? I'm here. Yep. Thanks for having me. Oh, good morning. Steve is a research fellow and writer for De Smog Blog and a freelance investigative journalist. I've been following his stuff for several years now. And generally, when you have a an environmental issue <laughs> that is that is making news, and and often when it's not making news, uh, Steve is the guy writing about it. And and I, and I and I think that says something too. Um, Steve, uh, because lately you have been posting a lot of information, uh, articles uh, at the Smog Blog um, about uh, the uh, doings in North Dakota, the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline and the water protectors. And, and see, right there, Steve, I'll, I'll have you know, uh, yeah. we, we had um, Dallas, Dallas Goldtooth. Goldtooth on the show uh, a few weeks ago. He sat right here in the studio and talked for an hour about what was going on out there, and it, this was before it started to get more violent, and it seems to have gotten more violent, uh, unfortunately, recently. But, you know, I kept calling it uh, the protesters, and he says, we're not protesters. We're water <laughs> protectors. And, okay, I'm like, I'm with you. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go down that road. I'll, I'll, I'll use that language because, as you know, Steve, language is important. How you frame an issue is, is very important, isn't it? That's absolutely important. Yeah, I mean, in my own writing, I do, I do say protesters. I'm not sure if that upsets people. Uh, the reason I, I guess I use it is because that's the, the term that the, the media is using. Maybe that's maybe the media, the mass media is wrong to use that term. But um, I think that just because it's kind of, I, I use that term. So oh, I'm that's not. the one that, yeah. no, no, I, I, you know, it's sort of like, that's what most people will, will see it as. But I do, I, I think maybe I should at least give the caveat that, like, like you said, like the, the people who are on the ground see, see themselves as water protectors. I've seen articles that do that do say that. I, I've been using it maybe just for the sake of simplicity, but it might be over simplicity. Well, so. you know, I'm not I'm not here to bust you, Steve. Okay, I'm actually oh, no, I, I'm here to get information from you and and to talk about some of the things that are not making headlines. But as I said, language is important, so I I do a little of both. Because they they are in a sense protesters as well. You can't you can't if you want to frame it so that the average person understands what's going on. They they because of the way the media presents it, they think of these people as protesters. Uh, however, if you continue to use the word water protectors, maybe that enters into the jargon as well. It enters into the conversation. So um, I use some of both. I have to admit, I'm trying. I'm I'm just trying to be sensitive to this. Okay. Yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And yeah, so uh, you've been writing lately um, about a number of issues, including um, um, a post that uh, let's see, this was yesterday's post. Um, the Dakota Access Pipeline builder ignored the Obama administration request to halt construction. So. I, the first question I have to ask you is, where, you know, without giving away sources, how are you getting your information? Have you been out there, or do you just are you just one of these guys that gets uh, online and digs like crazy? Uh, more of the latter, and um, try, just a lot of being in touch with people who are on the ground. I haven't been there yet. I, I do plan to go in the next 
month or two, assuming uh, that there's still uh, people out there by then. So it'll be very cold, and we'll see uh, well, what happens with, with the permitting and all of that. But I haven't been there yet. I've, I've relied heavily on uh, different uh, research methodologies that I have using Internet and other uh, online resources, and then a lot of uh, people on the ground have either passed me stuff or given t- uh, tips or I've had to make a lot of phone calls, like calling uh, the government government agencies who are operating there to get information from them. Uh, so it's been a a little bit difficult, to say the least. Um, but, it, you know, in other ways, it would be difficult being on the ground because of lack of reliable Internet and, uh, you know, the, there's certain things you see on the ground that you might not be able to capture uh, with the perspective of uh, that re- that research. So it's, I think it's it's been hard because uh, well, the hardest thing is not really being able to describe what it's like on the ground, not being there. But at the same time, there's, I would say that there's it's been nice to sort of look at it from afar um, and sort of capture things that may have not been captured from those who uh, are there and seeing it so closely. And uh, some of the stuff that you've noticed from afar uh, is uh, the various companies uh, that are involved that have been hired to do surveillance that have been hired to do other things, um, security, um, that you've written about that, uh, some of which, uh, as you describe, is suspected illegal activity. Can you explain that a little bit? Um, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the thing that you just mentioned was the uh, activity around the uh, 20-mile zone uh, east and west of Lake Oahe, which is the hotly contested area right now that basically is Standing Rock, more or less, uh, the encampments. And uh, the uh, September 9th, the Obama administration, through several agencies, including the Department of Justice, including the Department of Interior, including the Army Corps of Engineers, the, the latter being the main uh, permitting agency for this, but the others still have oversight, uh, basically came out on September 9th and said, look, you, you, we, we, request, we request you voluntarily stop building in this zone. Uh, what ended up coming out uh, basically really recently because of a drone-based video that was uh, produced by someone who's at Standing Rock right now, and he published it uh, through the website Indian Country News. It basically, sh- it, it does show that uh, you know, this was a voluntary thing. They didn't have to do it. There was no legal mandate. So the company, uh, Energy Transfer Partners, decided just to keep building in that voluntary uh, halt request zone. So construction really does continue all the way up until the one area where they don't have uh, a, a permit or an easement, and that is at Lake Oahe, which connects to the Missouri River. Uh, and so really um, most of the pipeline has been constructed. Um, they've created facts on the ground, and um, what Obama came out on October 31st, uh, did an interview uh, and talked about how they are considering a reroute. But what Energy Transfer Partners has done is made it uh, put those facts in the ground and made a reroute. Uh, you know, it would be very hard to reroute it at this point because they've literally constructed all the way up until the river. It doesn't mean it wouldn't be rerouted, but they've done everything in their power to make a reroute basically as difficult as possible. So that's sort of where we're at now, uh, with the, the broader context being that that video could not have been shot uh, 
uh, had it not been for the lifting of what was a no-fly zone. So there's a no-fly zone put in place on October 26th due to the alleged uh, shooting of arrows and drones at a helicopter, a law enforcement helicopter. So there was a Federal Aviation Administration no-fly zone put in place uh, between the dates of October 26th and November 5th. It was lifted uh, early because of public protest and uh, different people saying that this was uh, basically a violation of press rights who want to do reporting from there. Uh, interestingly, after I wrote that story, it looks like the FAA in contact with the FAA and was in touch with the public information officer on the ground. It looks like as of November 4th, they re-implemented a new no-fly zone between the dates of November 4th and November 15th. So that means that the type of video that was shot that does show this construction up to Lake Oahe could not take place now between now and November 15th, which is troubling for uh, press freedom issues. Um, and there's invisible evidence now that being up in the air and be able to use that type of drone uh, is helpful for people to gain perspective on what's happening that they could not get otherwise, because obviously you're not allowed into the private construction zone, but from above you can see it. And that was, that was crucial in this case. Wow, that's uh, very, very interesting. Now, if, if there is this no-fly zone, is it being violated by the companies involved with the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline, or do they have special privileges? What have you found out about that? Yeah, there, there's no violation, but they do have special privileges. So what I've found out uh, from people on the ground who send me uh, photographs uh, often very high-resolution photographs. You can see a, couple, a few different companies, uh, two, two main ones that are important. Uh, one of them, uh, Double M Helicopters, which is run by a local, a guy who lives locally who used to actually be in the United States military um, and, and has done helicopter-type work uh, in Afghanistan, for example. Uh, there's another company that is directly that has a direct tie to one of the co-owners of the pipeline so it's a, one of its customers listed on its website which it took it, it removed this portion of its website after i got in touch with them to, to try to talk to them more about it but i archived it uh making a pdf copy of the website before they were able to take it down but it shows that one of their customers enbridge which is a co-owner uh, also a huge pipeline conglomerate based in canada so they're a co-owner alongside energy transfer partners and um so you know they because of the arrangement, uh, law enforcement is able to pick private contractors that are allowed to, f to fly in. And they, uh, local officials on the ground told me that uh, the only people allowed to fly have to have law enforcement with them in the planes. Uh, I wouldn't say that it makes it less troubling. It just shows that it makes it more uh, troubling in a way. Actually, it makes it a little more troubling. Yeah, because there's you know they're doing it with exactly they're doing it like. In accompaniment with the law enforcement officials, so they, uh, and th that was their way of saying it was uh, a okay. But I think that some people may see it differently, and so that's sort of what's taking place. There, there are these uh, companies that are able to do what they're doing. One of them has a direct tie uh, to the co-owner of the pipeline, and uh, at least as of today, the no-fly zone is back in place. So only these types of companies are allowed in. And then what the high resolution photos show is that in the planes, they often have photographers in there who are taking photos of people on the ground and who knows what those 
photos are being used for. Well, maybe uh, maybe some, some, sort, some sort of intelligence. Gap, yeah, right. exactly. And and you know you've alluded to this earlier, which is the suppression of uh, First Amendment rights. I mean, it's one thing to have the um, protesters or water protectors, whatever you want to call them, there. They're trying to stop the action. But when Amy Goodman shows up or Dia Schlossberg shows up with cameras just to document this, and they are arrested, this is a problem. This is a serious affront to democracy and, and, and to our Constitution, actually, uh, in the United States. I mean, maybe it's a good thing you weren't there. Who knows? You might be in jail right now, Steve. Yeah, you know, I will say that uh, there was an article that just ran, I believe, yesterday in one of the local papers, and uh, there, are, there are names of seven different reporters or, or photojournalists uh, who had been you know, arrested, charged, uh, jailed, any, any sort of combo of those. So Amy Goodman was the most prominent. Dave Fosberg was also pretty prominent, but there are definitely others. Um, and not, not, you know, people who, not just citizen journals, not just people who go there and take uh, uh, photographs and put them online, but, you know, people who are pretty uh, well-acclaimed journalists and their own right, people from, you know, former Al Jazeera type reporters who've also been charged. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, they're doing uh, everything they can uh, in their power to repress uh, either activism, journalism, uh, you know, basically using all the tools in the tool book to try to beat back against, uh, you know, what we talked about earlier, the water protectors or the protesters, but mm-hmm. it extends well beyond that to the press now too. What helps make that easier for those people, for the, the companies uh, building the pipeline, is the inaccessibility of the area, as, as you've mentioned already, and, and Dallas Goldtooth did on this show. Cell service is terrible there. It's hard to get information in and out. I mean, if this were happening you know, along the shores of Lake Michigan, you can guarantee that the press would be all over it. But uh, it's uh, right. in this inaccessible area, eh, you know. Why, why go through the hardships of trying to get that, unless you're Amy Goodman? Yeah. Uh, uh, Peggy, you wanted to say something. I was, and, and, you know, just even looking at the, the Bundy situation, that mm-hmm. was inaccessible as well, but nobody was being arrested. Yeah. Um, there was plenty well, of coverage. Y- you know, so we, it's we, that yeah. whole other privilege issue. Uh, you know, and we can go into the idea that uh, that uh, the um, – the refuge in Oregon where we had the standoff and the jury comes back and lets all those people go. And you wonder what's going to happen with the people uh, here in uh, North Dakota. And that's a whole other yeah, issue. But the whole but, sovereign nation issues that were brought up. Right. And that's what, right. That, and something that you've pointed out, uh, Steve, uh, and, and, and sent me information on and Peggy and I have been looking at is this idea that we're dealing with a sovereign nation here and so are, we're getting into uh, a different realm altogether if the rights of that sovereign nation are violated. On the other hand, the United States has a history of violating the rights of the sovereign nations well, in within our own borders. Yeah, and it's a sovereign mm-hmm. nation of American citizens, and it's federal and state, right. and so it's a big mess. It, it, yeah, and, and, and that takes us to a question I asked you when we were communicating yesterday, and Peggy and I have done – uh, and I thank you for sending me the information that you did, Steve. Which is, who's in the right here? Um, now you're hearing you're hearing 
folks say, well, the, uh, the tribes had the information, they just didn't respond properly, or they didn't respond in time, or whatever, and other people are going, no, they have absolutely all the rights in the world, and they did, and, they, you know, and this was fast-tracked, and um, that's a mess, too, because it turns into he said, she said, doesn't it, Steve? It does, yeah. Um, I think that it you could probably make pretty credible legal arguments on, on each side. Um, for example, uh, there's this map that went pretty viral on the Internet that was made by a cartographer at the University of Wisconsin-Madison named Carl Sack, and that's up on Huffington Post. It's been written about by on numerous publications, and he he shows uh, the historic – this is actually on historic uh, – treaty land uh, under the uh, 1851 Treaty of Fort Laramie, and he really lays it out. Um, so the, you know, the tribes have said, well, look, um, if, the, if the pipeline company is going to claim eminent domain and they've secured all of these easements from private landowners, well, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to use eminent domain now because uh, this is our land. And so I think that it could definitely and may become a legal dispute over that, which would get into all kinds of interesting and important uh, colonial history issues. <laughs> um, I don't know if they're, you know, they've said that they may go that route if they need to legally. Um, they probably don't want, you know, that, that, that would be very drawn out, and we'll see if it ends up taking that route. But it's, it's opened up a whole new discourse about those issues. And as you said, you, you mentioned the fast track. That was a key process that was used. It's called the Nationwide Permit 12. Uh, These are permits that uh, have been issued for other pipelines as well, and it it is a way of not going through the traditional uh, National Environmental Policy Act process that does draw in uh, public commenting periods, uh, public hearing periods. So none of that really took place with this pipeline, uh, especially in this this area in particular. They use a nationwide permit 12, the area of dispute. Well, you yeah. know, one can make the argument that if they had the opportunity, they may have yeah. voiced those concerns. But this is, you know, the whole purpose of the Nationwide Permit 12 process is that it doesn't really become a public discourse. It's something that's that goes through kind of, you know, you could, if you follow it very closely through the Federal Register, you may see it, but you may have never realized that they were even doing it until the whole thing was already done. Well, if you if you know anything about Illinois, um, you can have, uh, in terms of factory farms, and we've talked about it on this show, you can have a public hearing, you can have a county board say, no, we don't want it, uh, and then they get built anyway. They get completely overridden, so sometimes it doesn't even matter if there's a public outcry. Um, and you know, I know it's a, a different issue, but correct, yeah. But it's yeah, but it, it's, it, it doesn't guarantee that it obviously doesn't guarantee anything in terms of halting it. But it, it does probably at the very least, I'd say it, it would have been an opportunity much earlier on in the process that people may have you know voiced concerns and it could have created different dynamics back you know a couple of years ago when this thing was first kind of being introduced, um, and then you know. Fast forwarding months later, when this particular plot of land was, because uh, originally this was actually going to go northward uh, uh, through Bismarck, mm-hmm. and then it got moved a little bit south, moving through uh, this this land that's now being disputed. So, well, well, uh, but lots of this was more. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to say, inevitably, it still has to cross the Missouri, and it still has to cross the Mississippi, and it's going to, uh, you know, and and. and that puts certain waters at risk. That's correct. And I mean, I, you know, water has been 
major uh, uh, point of dispute in this particular conflict. Um, I would say that uh, just you know, looking at the root of where this oil is coming from, the Bakken shale oil field, um, it's the most important for the industry, probably the most important field in the country right now for fracking, for oil, besides maybe the Eagle Ford shale. Uh, in Texas, there's much more uh, historical, you know, because of Texas' oil country, there's a lot more pipeline infrastructure already in place down in Texas, so they haven't really had these types of disputes. Um, this is really would be the first ever major Bakken oil pipeline to ship, uh, you know, over 500,000 barrels a day of oil. That's over 21 million gallons a day, if you want to do mm-hmm. uh, kind of measures that people understand. Um so this is a lot of oil uh, that would be fast-tracked down southward. Um, and it's, so it's not only a water issue, it's also a major, now it becomes a major climate change issue. It becomes a water issue at the fracking site itself. Yeah. Uh, it becomes a methane, methane pollution issue with uh, you know, climate concerns with methane being a greenhouse gas more potent than carbon dioxide. So uh, there are, this is a, you know, a very important pipeline for the industry, but it's also a very important pipeline for climate change reasons. Uh, the, the, the group uh, Oil Change International I think calculated that it would be the equivalent of something like 20 to 30 coal power plants uh, per year being put uh, in line in the United States. So this is a major uh, carbon bomb. You know, Keith and I kind of talked about it as a carbon bomb. Right. This one doesn't really get talked about as much that way, but I think it should be. It is. Uh, be, well, th- there's. we've been distracted from that, but uh, it is. Right, yeah. It's also that. Well, listen, we, we already bumped over 10 o'clock. I got guests waiting in the wings. And, um, uh, Steve, I'd love to have you back on the, on the show again. Again, it's Steve Horn, uh, who is a freelance investigative journalist for Desmog Blog, uh, writer. And, uh, and I appreciate uh, what you're covering here. You should uh, keep in touch with us, and uh, we'll, we'll have you on again and talk about it, these issues. Sounds great. I'd love to come back on. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care now. Have a great Sunday. You too. Bye-bye. You too. Take care. Bye. It's the Mike Novak Show on Q4 Radio, 1680 AM, Q4.org. And um, when we come back, and I apologize, we bumped over 10 o'clock, got a little, uh, but you know, it's good stuff. There's a lot to talk about. There is a, that yes. that conversation could go on for a couple more hours. Um, but uh, we've got uh, Lisa Moon and Shana Harris waiting for us uh, to talk about the Food Tank Summit, and that happens right after this. Won't you guide my slave If you've followed me over the years, you know that my background is not horticulture or environmental science or even political theory. It's showbiz. And at this time of year, I go back to my showbiz roots to promote my caroling group, the Frozen Robins. Here's a sample of our work. So if you're looking for a bunch of entertainment pros to add some fun to your holiday event, write to me, Mike at MikeNovak.net. 
about the Frozen Robins or contact me on any of my social media outlets. We'd love to be the hit of your season. Captain's Log, Stardate 42326.1. The Enterprise is under attack by an apparently hostile life form. Mr. Wolf, status report. Inexplicable, Captain. They appear to be perambulating vegetables. We are being stalked by stalks of asparagus. That is incorrect, Mr. Wolf. Killer asparagus was the subject of a very popular 21st century tome by the brilliant author Mike Novak. Mike Novak. I'm familiar with his work, and so am I. Mike Novak was one of the smartest, funniest people in the horticultural world of the 21st century. Tell me more, Mr. Data. He has been variously compared to Mark Twain, Dave Barry, and Edgar Allan Poe. Raven Gosplach, my favorite holiday dish. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Data, options. It seems to be available online at AroundTheBlockPress.com. AroundTheBlockPress.com. What do they have to say? Hmm. It appears that Mike Novak is a slapstick every gardener. I prefer my asparagus with a side of patach Mr. Wolf, are you joking? Actually, Captain, I believe he is choking. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show, still Chicago's only locally broadcast deep green gardening and environment program. Broadcasting live every Sunday from the Genesis Art Supply Building on North Elston Avenue, on Q4 Radio, and at MikeNovak.net. Here he is again, Mike Novak. Welcome back. We are in the midst of uh, dialing for guests here. Shane, are you with us? I am. And I'm trying to see if Lisa is there. Lisa, are you there on the phone? I am. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, both of you, for for being with us uh, so we can talk about the Food Tank Summit coming up in Chicago. And, I, and I'm going to go right to my cheat sheet here because we have, we have all the information that uh, uh, we have been gathering about this if my computer would actually cooperate here. And I know you've got Here we are. Uh, it's November 16th, 9 to 5 at the Gleacher Center at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Um, and if you're wondering where the Gleacher Center is, um, basically it's right next to Tribune Tower. It's at 450 North City Front Plaza Drive. Um, you can get your tickets at foodtanksummit.com. The theme of the summit is we can change the food system. That's why we have our two guests, Lisa Moon from the Global Food Banking Network and uh, Shana Harris from Farmer's Fridge. We'll get to you guys in just a second, but I want to um, let folks know that there are a couple of major partners on this show, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Uh, it turns out that Organic Valley is the sponsor of the Facebook live stream. Mm-hmm. I think we got to give them three dings. I'll give them all dings for helping out uh, with, the, <laughs> with the summit. Um, and apparently, now I, I can't figure out the numbers. They sent me two different numbers. Maybe one of you guys know, but uh, we'll have uh, 
uh, Danielle on the show next week, uh, Nirenberg, who's the president of Food Tank, and maybe she can give us the exact numbers. I, one of the pieces of information they sent me said they had a, a million organic Facebook live views when they did their summit in Sacramento last month. The other one said 15,000. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of a huge difference. <laughs> Uh, but re- I was at the, the California summit, uh, Mike, and, and they did mention a million views. It was like a big um, breakthrough moment for them, big milestone. So I, I think that million number is accurate. Wow. Okay. Well, that, that gets a beer ding. Ooh. All right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, Barilla USA is hosting the reception slash dinner. And you know where that is, Peggy. Italy. At uh, 43 East Ohio Street. That's 6 uh, to 9 p.m. again. That's on the 16th of November. And there's a reception right before that for folks who don't want to attend the whole dinner. Right. Uh, and so I think I've gotten all the required stuff out of the way. That's, <laughs> all, that's all the time we have, folks. Uh, Good night, nice everybody. Talking, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> Great job. <laughs> uh, well, they, <laughs> there's a lot going on, um, obviously. Uh, let's let's start with you, Lisa. Uh, you are the president and CEO at the Global Food Banking Network. Um, tell us a little bit about the food banking network. I could do that, but I've already spoken too long. Um, uh, tell us about the, the Global Food Banking Network and why you're involved with uh, the Food Tank Summit. Sure, sure. Well, well, thanks so much for the opportunity to join um, this conversation. Uh, you know, I, I used to work in agriculture um, and really think about ways that we could be um, sustainably increasing the, the food that we're producing. Um, you know, but as I worked more on those issues, it really was stunning um, to learn that we waste about a third of all food that is produced. Um, and that food waste has, you know, stunning environmental effects. Um, it's the third largest contributor to greenhouse gases globally. Um, and that doesn't even include all of the um, resources and the labor um, and the funds that are wasted to produce that food. Uh, and so the food banking is really a model to try to take that food that is um, poised to be wasted and redistribute it to those that are facing hunger or are struggling with food access. Um, and that's quite a few people. It's uh, one in four people in the world are malnourished. Um, and so the Global Food Banking Network uh, really exists to see food banking as a model, um, you know, spread across the world. Our network includes food banking organizations in 32 countries. Uh, and last year, um, that network rescued about 930 million pounds of food um, to distribute it to 6.8 million people in need. Um, and and the, the model works um, in a lot of different contexts in a lot of different communities. Um, and with so much food being wasted, um, we really believe that there's a real opportunity to scale and not only have environmental um, impact, but also reduce hunger. You know, I hardly know where to start here because, um, first of all, you're working not just on a local level, but you're working internationally trying to do this. We had Rob Greenfield on the show. Are you familiar with him? He's, yes, yes, I am. He, yeah, the dude with a purpose. I mean, the dude, you know, <laughs> and he's, and I think he just finished wearing all of his trash yeah. for 30 days. Mid-October mm-hmm. he finished, yeah. Yeah, yeah. in, in, in uh, New York City. And, and, and he's, he's a guy that goes around the country dumpster diving uh, and can feed himself that way because so much of food yeah. is thrown away. And yet we're here in the city of Chicago, and you know, this, I have to get this out there because this is me, um, in a city that barely 
will pick up your yard waste. In fact, you know, got rid of the program, and now they have an opt-in program just for yard waste. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface of food scraps. Mm. In fact, next week, very interesting, I'm going to have uh, Erlene Howard on from Collective Resource. Uh, You folks may know her. Um, She goes around the city picking up food scraps and making sure they get composted. We're going to have also on the same program uh, Kay McKean from Scarce out in DuPage County. Mm. And their whole deal is to recycle and reuse everything as much as you possibly can. So you, Lisa, are, are, first of all, you're dealing with a country that doesn't know how to reuse and recycle. and, And in many cases doesn't seem to care. Yeah, and and not only so, not, you're, you're starting with that point, with the, the richest country in the world, in the history of the world, that doesn't care. And now you've got to take this message around the world and convince other countries as well. Uh, how, how does that work? Right, you know, that's, that's the, the great dilemma. Um, what we've really found, though, is that even though... Uh, people kind of think that you know food, the, the supply chain ends when you when you go to a, a grocery store, when you go um, to a, a restaurant and purchase the food. Um, but the reality is, from a business perspective, um, whatever food is wasted, that has to be disposed of, and there's costs with that disposal, and obviously not just environmental costs, but also financial implications. And um, we work mainly in emerging markets, and we find that this is especially true in emerging markets where there aren't as many outlets for food recycling as there are in um, the United States and Europe. But one thing that we've really found a lot of success with, um, and those in our network have, is, is talking about the financial implications of disposing that food. Um, because the reality is, is, with the food banking model, you um, can you know, mitigate those costs. And in some countries, depending on the policy environment, you actually get um, tax incentives to donate it. All right, um, where? So from where? a financial perspective, it, it makes sense. Tell me where. where. Which country should I move to so I can get a financial incentive for it? <laughs> sure. So, so um, obviously in the U.S. and in some countries in Europe, there's, there's strong incentives. Colombia actually has even – it's the best um, incentive system in the world because not only do you get to write off 100% of – uh, the value of the food that you're donating, there's actually kind of a, a surcharge on that in terms of what you can write off. So it's an additional 25%. Um, and actually, just last month, Bulgaria, um, they didn't es- exactly establish an incentive per se, but they eliminated the, the VAT tax because a lot of times people who were donating had to pay VAT on their donations. And so that was just waived. Um, but I would say if you're going to relocate, Mike, you should go to Columbia. You should get a, an extra tax incentive there. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I don't speak that language or the Bulgarian either. So uh, you'll do just fine. Yeah. Uh, well, but it's 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 good to know. It's those are not two countries that would have come to mind my mind if somebody had said, "All right, who's really good at incentivizing um, reuse of uh, food scraps and 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 uh, saving this precious resource?" And I. Colombia and Bulgaria? No, I, I don't think I would have gone down that road. Uh, all right, let's let's go to Shana uh, because this Shana, you present another side of the food tank summit um, because you are the chief operating officer at Farmers Fridge. We were talking earlier in the show. I don't know if you heard it, but Peggy ran into one of your machines or your what do you call them installations? We call them fridges. Fridge. So they're fridges. Okay. So and it, I didn't run into that. 
But no, I turned the corner. I was at Merchandise Mart. I turned the corner. I was like, wow, there's there's the farmer's fridge right there. And it was a, the, the double one, too. Fabulous. Really cool. Yep. Yeah, so explain to folks listening what a farmer's fridge is. Yeah, so a farmer's fridge is a friendly fridge in your neighborhood, school, office building, hospital, where you can go get a fresh, healthy meal uh, made daily, very vegetable-focused menu. Um, you know, we source locally from farmers in the area when we can. And what we aim to do is bring people a really nutritious, delightful, um, delicious meal very conveniently. And so we've got about 50 fridges in Chicago currently, um, including some of the locations I mentioned. So we're in Evanston High School, the City Colleges, Northwestern Hospital, number of office buildings downtown, the Merchandise Mart. We've also recently opened in O'Hare Airport. And the idea is that, you know, fresh food, um, it shouldn't, shouldn't be the exception. It should be the norm. But as we know, you know, a lot of us go to grab a quick lunch um, during a break at school or at the office, and it's not as easy as we would like to find really fresh options. And so what we do is we produce um, salads. We've got about eight different types of salads, um, very unique combinations where we put together some surprising vegetables. So this month, our, our salad of the month um, features delicata squash. So we're trying to introduce consumers to really great um, vegetables and fruits that they might not um, normally know how to eat or, or what to combine them with. Huh. Um, and you can basically find this very conveniently uh, where, where you live or work. And it's in a mason jar format, so easy to kind of carry and transport, throw in your backpack, um, and eat when you're, when you're ready to eat something healthy. All right, all right. Well, so we, we have to explain a few things here because uh, that might get – folks uh, interested, but the I imagine the word you don't want to hear or the phrase you don't want to hear is vending machine, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we, we do sell, um, we, we call this our fridge. It's, it's, it's not a vending machine, it's a fridge. fridge. But it is, it is a, it, it, it vends, it's an automatic <laughs> It takes credit so. cards. And, yeah. yeah, it takes credit card, you go up, there's an interactive touch screen. Um, so you're not interacting with a person. There's a touch screen where you can, you know, choose what, what you want to eat, and it vends out very quickly. So that's what makes this so convenient. The machine or the fridge footprint is small, and so that's why we can be, um, you know, in, in a hospital at night when the cafeteria closes um, in a convenient place where nurses and doctors can pick up a meal. Um, or we can be in the UIC library. You know, students want something quick. There's not really room for a quick-service restaurant there. And so the fridge is a really convenient option. And they're not buying Cheetos. Exactly. <laughs> no flaming hot Cheetos there. No, no. flaming hot Cheetos. You know, and all it does, it just gives you orange lips. And, you know, you really don't want that. For us, you can get orange lips from our squat. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, connecting to what Lisa mentioned in terms of food waste. So, you know, for us, this is really about democratizing access to healthy, fresh food. And we see that kind of all the way through our chain. So we're in surprising places. We're at very, very affordable prices for fresh salads and, and hearty snacks. And we we donate um, all of the, the excess food that comes back from to our kitchen. So we partner with a local organization called Zero Percent. And they um, will donate to, you know, food pantries and after-school programs around the city. So, you know, we want to make sure that every last bit of our food gets enjoyed by somebody along the way. Uh, That was going to be my next question. So you've you've answered that. Peggy? So I was reading a little bit about your process that everything's delivered fresh every day. By 5 a.m., you guys are delivering. Where are you sourcing all of the foods from? That is a great question. So we so we partner with a number of local suppliers. So that ranges um, from Mighty Vine Tomatoes. So that's a hydroponic farm um, on the south side of Chicago. So we've got fresh tomatoes in our 
avocado beef tea. We're, uh, we're, we're hoping to have them on the show when they open their new facility. They were gearing for December, which I think is a great time to, to open a facility that's going to grow tomatoes, especially in, Chicago. in Illinois. Yeah. yeah. Out in Rochelle. Yeah, yeah. So we, we partner with, um, with companies like Mighty Vine, um, you know, artisanal cheese producers. It's just a really great um, operation because we can feature with this rotating jar of the month, we can feature um, different different products and bring those to consumers. Um, you know, and then we also partner with um, traditional suppliers like Cisco, and we're actually the largest buyer of organic um, spinach in the city of Chicago, mm. according to Cisco. So we, um, we're, we're trying to do as much as we can to really support a robust, healthy local supply chain um, and also invest in sustainable sourcing practices. So how did you come up with the idea of doing the farmer's fridge? It's a great question. So our founder, um, Luke Saunders, launched the company about three years ago. He was a traveling salesman um, across the Midwest in a prior lifetime and really found it um, impossible to find a healthy, fresh meal while he was on the road. He, he was frustrated by that. So he started to think, you know, what if fresh, healthy food were as easily accessible as McDonald's? McDonald's has an incredible format where they are serving millions of people every single day around the country. Mm-hmm. So he started Farmer's Fridge with this idea of democratizing fresh food. And that really is, is the mission, to make you know, this fresh, wholesome food more convenient than it's ever been. Mm. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, and the fact that you can put it into to practice uh, with your fridges, not mm-hmm. vending machines, your fridges. Uh, well, okay, so the two of you are, uh, are participating in the Food Tank Summit. And by the way, let's... Uh, Let's uh, give that a, a plug uh, one more time. Uh, and, and we will, again, um, November 16th, 9 to 5 a.m. at the Gleacher Center in Chicago. Get your tickets at foodtanksummit.com. Um, a bunch of folks, I mean, I have, they, they sent us a list of people who are going to be presenting and speaking, including uh, Rick Bayless and uh, Frontera and Alicia Black, uh, Chicago Council on Global Affairs, um, looking at some of the people, well, Bill Daly is going to be there, uh, Monica Ang from WBEZ, um, uh, let's see, Karen Lehman from Fresh Taste, uh, uh, Daniel Nierenberg, as I mentioned, who, oh, Jonathan Pereira uh, from Plant Chicago. I'm working with him right now uh, on uh, doing a benefit down there for the Illinois Recycling Association. Harry Rhodes from Growing Home, Jim Slama from Family Farmed. Uh, most of those people have been on this show before. Uh, so a lot of, lot of great people. So that takes me back to you, Lisa. Uh, what is it you hope to accomplish in a day-long meeting uh, here in Chicago? Sure. You know, well, one of the great things about Food Tank is that they bring so many voices to the table that um, – that should be part of kind of the mainstream dialogue on food and are part of that, but um, don't necessarily have the same amplification as, um, as other players in the food system. So, uh, so I think what's really exciting about the agenda that Danny and her team have put together is that you kind of have people working all across the supply chain, um, really kind of driving towards this idea that the way we are um, supplying food right now isn't working. You know, there are literally nearly a billion people who don't have access to nutritious foods on a, on a regular basis. And on top of that, we have a lot of environmental constraints. Um, and and if, if we really are going to be, you know, ramping up in population in the next 20 years, we've got to really think about how we're going to produce food more sustainably and make sure that every single, you know, um, 
uh, ounce of food that's produced is, is getting on people's plates um, in a nutritious way. And so I think that um, kind of by bringing all these players together, we're going to be able to have a really lively conversation with all different aspects of the supply chain about, about how we do democratize food access. Uh, I, I don't remember. I don't have it right in front of me. But, Lisa, are you on one of the panels? I am. I am. I'm the one on the one uh, that Bill Daly is moderating. Ah. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> and there's two of us who work mainly internationally on that panel um, and then uh, several people that are working locally and then nationally. And I think what's exciting about that is that no matter where you are in the world, you're kind of everyone's grappling with with the same set of issues. Mm -hmm. So it should be a really interesting discussion. Yeah, Jim Slama, Mel Coleman, Eleanor Starmer, and Alexander Borshaw will be joining you as well on that panel. Yeah. And uh, so same question for for you, Shana. Um, Again, you know, you're... You're not an NGO. You're you're a business. You're trying to sell a product. Um, what is it that you think you can accomplish at uh, the Food Tank Summit? Yeah, you know, very similar to Lisa. And actually, my background is a bit is a bit of a mix of of private and public sector, and but really always with this objective of you know um, ensuring that we can source food sustainably to feed the future, and that people can access that, and everybody has access to it. And so, I really do feel like the the opportunities and the big challenges that we're facing in the nonprofit sector, um, in, in the sector and the issues that Lisa is addressing around food waste and food recovery um, and, and feeding people sustainably. Um, and then the challenges we're facing as a fast growing company, you know, to make sure that we um, have access to markets and, and really can invest in um, bringing food to kind of unexpected places mm-hmm. that 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 can happen. That really requires collaboration across a number of different sectors. And so, um, you know, for us, we've been partnering with um, suppliers and, and, and starting to talk to farmers who are, are, are providing us with our food and saying, you know, how do we ensure that our purchases make us an, an investment that ensures that those types of businesses can grow? Um, how do, you know, partnering with 0% in terms of food waste and recovery, you know, as we continually work to minimize waste coming out of our facility and coming back from our fridges, you know, how can we continue to partner with an organization like 0% because those food rescue and waste issues are, um, are are pervasive. So even as we address those within our own business, there's a lot that we can contribute to ensuring that food does get to, to people who, um, who, you know, deserve a right to, to eat healthy food. And so, I, I, you know, just, just what Lisa said, that the, the challenges are, are so big, but there's a lot of innovation within all of our sectors. And I think having the opportunity to come together, hear what each other are doing, and there can be some really surprising and uncommon collaborations that come out of those um, instances and those moments. So really looking forward to the Food Take event to, to learn from others, to share our story, um, and you know, really continue along the innovation path. Did you attend the, um, this is actually the third summit that Food Tank's doing this year. There was one in Washington and one out in California. Did you attend either of those? Yes, I, I did. I attended both of them. Um, Farmers Fridge is sponsoring the, the meeting. Okay. And um, the Farm Take Summit in Sacramento was just fabulous in terms of bringing together really the food production um, farm piece of the story and the kind of private sector companies trying to turn that food into something great that people want to eat. And to be honest, I mean, I told Danny this, I, I found it to be one of the best food conferences um, that, I, that I attend all year because there's she really, really strives to bring together you know, activists and executives and um, nonprofit voices and farmers all in the same room to say, look, we've got a common goal. These challenges are so critical that we can't see each other as enemies. We have to see each other as allies. And I found panel after panel, um, you know, one of the ones that sticks out was on sustainable protein. She had one of the founders of Nyman Ranch 
um, you know, speaking uh, with a food journalist, speaking with a an alternative poultry farmer, um, and then an executive from a, from a large company, um, large meat company on the panel as well. And, you know, you find it a space for really respectful dialogue, really encouraging a lot of listening and excellent moderation to start to get to some of what the core of the issues are around bringing people together for solutions rather than, you know, kind of seeing each other's adversaries. So it's um, really was a fabulous, fabulous experience. For it's me. what we call biodiversity, right? Yes. <laughs> Except uh, homo, right. sa- homo sapiens biodiversity. Well, and speaking of diversity, let me ask this question. What is Food Tank doing to make sure we're asking the questions of diversity in the, in the U.S. here? Uh, yes, thank you, Peggy. How are we, how are we addressing... Um, with food tank and a lot of these discussions, reaching all the communities, and, and and I imagine that's a, that's a, goes to Lisa because this is what you do when you're dealing with different countries and different cultures, right? Yes, yes. You know, I I, um, I think that the conversation around food access is is changing a lot, um, and the other part of the conversation that I think is really interesting, and food tank has done a lot um, to highlight this, is how what are we doing to make sure that the people that are working in the food system, you know, have fair wages and um, also have access. You know, the, the greatest irony, and I know you all are having Roger Thoreau from Chicago Council on um, in a few, I believe it's next week. Next um, week, yes. And he'll talk a lot, yeah, he'll talk a lot about this, that some of the hungriest people in the world are farmers, um, and they're farming very small plots of land. Most of them are women, and they just don't have um, access to the sustainable practices um, that they need to really increase their yields and, and then sell the food that they're growing at a fair price. And so... Um, when you have, you know, half a billion people working in the food system that are actually growing the food and they don't have, you know, access to a nutritious meal, I mean, that's, that's really the ultimate dichotomy um, and the ultimate irony. And so I think that one thing that Danny's done a great job at Food Tank and doing and that I think so many of us are concerned about who are working on access issues is really making sure that all the food that we're producing is reaching the bottom of the pyramid. And a lot of times that the, at the bottom of the pyramid, there are farmers. I, I thought that the, your comment that uh, farmers don't eat as well as they should is kind of revealing, Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if, if you look across, so the hungriest people in the world um, are residing in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. They're living in rural areas, and they're working in agriculture. Um, and those are the people that, I mean, w- that are the most food insecure. Um, they don't even have access to enough calories. Um, to is, it, is, it because, is, it, life. is it because they're not growing a, a variety of foods? Is that, you know, is this, are we talking about monocultures here, and, the, and they can't put that on their table? Is that part of it? Part of it is the is the fact that they're growing food that is less than nutritious, but the other part of it is too is that you know to to really to have a diverse diet, um, you know there's some things that you can do in Africa and South Asia related to home gardens um, and diversifying your um, plot. But at the end of the day, what you need a lot of times to diversify your diet is income and. Um, and so these farmers obviously are relying on selling what they grow, and there just isn't a market for their products. Um, or when they do sell it into the market, they're just getting, you know, a rock-bottom price. Um, and, uh, and that's really, you know, due to a variety of things. But I, I 
think you're right, Mike. You have to take kind of a two-pronged approach to this. One is making sure that what they're growing, um, you know, is nutrient-rich and diverse. But the second thing, too, is just making sure that when they do go to sell their product, they can get a decent price for for it so they can, you know, they can really have the income to purchase what, what they aren't able to grow at home. And uh, as you mentioned, Roger Throw, Senior Fellow, Global Food and Agriculture at the Chicago Hello, Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Uh, we'll be here next week with Danielle Nirenberg, uh, the president of Food Tank. And, and I guess my big question for both of you is, if I get to know her well enough, can I call her Danny the way you guys do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yes, it's I a, think you can. <laughs> important stuff here, you know. i, I got to get the heart of the matter. Yeah. <laughs> we actually have a question came in for Shana on oh. Twitter. A question's pouring in. Hold on. Questions are coming in. Um, When somebody purchases a tasty meal and has a mason jar left, can they bring it back to you and return it? They can, actually. All of our fridges have a slot to recycle your jar. A lot of people reuse them. Actually, we find some fun Pinterest pages with, um, you know, what (laughs) you do with with a, a, a mason jar, and people have done some fun stuff with the farmer's fridge jars as well. Somebody recently told me, I've held on to mine for a year and a half. I make my own salads with it. Uh, but that's, uh, but that's yes, good because they're not, they're not a glass, by the way, are they? They're not. They're, they're, um, yeah, they're, they're plastic and, and they're um, all recyclable components. So the jar, the lid, the label peels off very easily. Yeah, but even better is the, the idea that it gets reused, I would think. Uh-huh. Absolutely, yeah. So that, that's really fun. There's a lot we want to start doing to play up that aspect of the jar as well. Yeah. Okay, so that's as you, you said. We need the, the creative uses of the uh, the jars uh, out of the fridge. So, so. And yeah. send us your photos. We'll post them. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Will. Uh, well, uh, Lisa Moon uh, and uh, Shana Harris. Uh, I guess I'm going to see you guys on the 16th in person, um, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Peggy and I will be at the Food Tank Summit, uh, and again, go to foodtanksummit.com if you want more information um and and we should point out that the you know food tank has not been around all that long it's it's just a a few years Mm -hmm. old and uh has gotten very big very quickly started in chicago um everything starts in chicago yeah all right all right (laughs) there we go i got them both uh so uh, and again as we mentioned uh next week uh on the show we will continue our conversation uh, about this with uh, Daniel Nirenberg. I mean, I'm sorry, Danny. Danny Nirenberg, the president of Food Tank, and Roger Thoreau uh, from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. So, Lisa Moon and uh, Shana Harris, thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you uh, in a week and a half. Sounds great. Great. Thanks for having us. Have a w- wonderful Sunday. <laughs> Bye. You. you do the same. Okay. Uh, it's the Mike Novak Show on Q4. Radio, R Q4, R R, and uh, I think uh, I'm looking at, oh yeah, let's... Uh, I'm looking at Genesis. Yeah, go ahead. Say, did you know that Genesis is the Midwest's largest source of airbrush supplies? Find out more at chicagoairbrushsupply.com or artsupply.com. Or stop into their showroom right here at 2525 North Elston and say that you heard about them on Q4 Radio or the Mike Novak Show and get an extra 10% off their already discounted prices. Genesis, Chicago's only privately owned art supplier, serving all of Chicago's artistic framing and drafting needs since 1946. And as you've just heard right here on this program, Food Tank is having the first, well, they call it first annual, what, inaugural 
uh, food tank summit uh, in Chicago on November 16th at the Gleacher Center. More than 30 different speakers from the food and agriculture field, including researchers, farmers, chefs, policymakers, government officials, and students. And Mike and Peggy will come together for interactive panels moderated by the top food journalists. Now, we don't know. We haven't nailed this down yet. And maybe I'm, I'm talking out of school here. But there's a possibility, I guess, that I might be doing some of those Facebook interviews streaming live mm-hmm. to a million people. That'll be pretty cool. Uh, that's all right with me. Uh, after the summit, join Food Tank for a reception and dinner at Chef Mario Batali's Italy. What are we going to do when we're done with this? I don't know. It's given us the most fun we've had in months. Uh, The the Mike Novak Show is proud to be a media sponsor of this event. Learn more and buy your tickets at foodtanksummit.com. Right now, you can get 25% off any ticket using this code, 25OFF, 25OFF. We hope we see you at the Food Tank Summit. Rick DeMille Weather, coming up next. This is Suzanne Malik McKenna for Chicago Wilderness. When you think of our region, wilderness may not be the first thing that comes to mind. Did you know this area is home to more than half a million acres of protected nature with thousands of plants and animal species? Our local native wildlife need your help. Now is the time. 12 Animals in 12 Weeks is a campaign to get support for these critical species and their habitats. Sponsor one today. Meet the species at chicagowilderness.org splash species. Splash species. I kind of like that. (laughs) Ah. Hey, this is Peggy. When I speak at local events, people often ask me, aren't you the Peggy in the Natural Awakenings ads? And that makes me happy because it reminds me that Chicagoans want to live healthier lives, and Natural Awakenings magazine helps them do just that. Natural Awakenings is the greenest, healthiest magazine in the Chicago area. Each month, we bring you the latest information about health and wellness, complementary medicine, fitness and exercise, raising healthy kids, and even healthy pets. You'll find articles about healthy homes, too, including gardening, energy efficiency, and green living. And if you love good food, you'll always find tasty recipes and cooking hints. Check out our monthly calendar. It's full of events to help keep you connected. Natural Awakenings is available in more than 1,100 locations throughout Chicago and suburban Cook, Lake, and McHenry counties. And it's free. Or visit us online at nachicagonorth.com. Natural Awakenings. Feel good. Live simply. Laugh more. Spending more time at home these days? Give yourself some room. Renovate your basement or attic. You'll increase your living space and your home's resale value, too. Trust DR Services Unlimited, 847-998-1687 for your remodeling needs, including additions, renovations, and other home improvements. Rated A-plus by the Better Business Bureau and recommended on Angie's List. DR is a proud member of NARI. DR provides exceptional quality at a fair price. Contact DR at 847-998-1687 or at RestoreTheNorthShore.com. Everybody sing. They're not talking about DeMaio, are they? (laughs) And let's bring in our own Jeepster, Rick DeMaio. (laughs) That's what I'm now, the Jeepster? 
you, you are you are the uh, or the Rickster. The Rickster. Well, the Rickster. The, I don't know. I I kind of like Jeepster, the official Jeepster of the Mike Novak show, Rick DeMaio. <laughs> yeah, Rick <clears throat> Rick DeMaio with uh, half a voice this morning, Mike. Are uh, you okay? Still... Were you were you screaming yesterday or something, or is you still left over from the Cubs rally? Um, I think it has more to do with the Cubs rally and then a little bit of the Wisconsin game, but there wasn't much to, to cheer about. The game was kind of flat, but um, we won't talk you know, about the Wisconsin is, game. Though. Is some of the, um, uh, the 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 mold in the air and the and the and the, and the dusty leaves and the you know kind of pushing through the atmosphere as well. So it's a bunch of different things this time of the year. But uh, as long as I keep my level of of octaves going through my voice, I think I'll be okay. <laughs> and uh, I, I got to ask you, Rick, uh, were you watching Be Depressed yeah. uh, this morning? Um, yeah, actually, um, <clears throat> due to the fact that we uh, turned the clocks back, I got up actually an hour earlier uh, and watched a little bit of the Sunday morning show with uh, Jane Pauley, which was, um, you know, Jane Pauley took over for Charles Osgood. And I always like that because it's more of a, it, 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 it's got more substance to it. it it's, it's a new show that's more about people. You don't see all these maps fly around with numbers and percentages and things like that. But, yeah, I, <clears throat> I did watch uh, Meet the Press, and they were kind of going around the panel asking everybody what they thought was going to happen. And I think they all kind of agree that they can't wait for this to be over. But even if it's, it is over, um, Unfortunately, it still shows a very divided country, mm-hmm. um, you know, for, for many reasons. And hopefully whoever wins will be able to reach over to the other side and go, look, I feel your pain. You know, let's talk about this. Um, I think one side is going to have a little bit more difficult time reaching over when all that person's been doing is calling everybody who supports that particular person, um, you know, not, not very good things. And that's always that's always the problem when. You know, I always talk about it when you live in the same condo building, you can't yell across the, um, the parkway there at your neighbor to shut your dog up because you never know when you're going to bump into them in the hallway. You know, you got nice to do things nice in a much doggy. more. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's true. I mean, you got to do things in a much more, you know, um, I don't know, humanistic, uh, neighborhoody way. Otherwise, it becomes more and more difficult to live with people. Yeah. And no, you're right. That's the. Yeah, that that's the kind of um, that's the that's the kind of uh, election this has been. Unfortunately, I, I think it's been sparked by one person. Um, but I, I I did kind of um, see something this morning, Mike and Peg, that was kind of analogous to the election. I was walking my dog and I saw one woodpecker, um, you know, climb onto a tree. It was a big old elm, and then all of a sudden another woodpecker did as well. And they were both, you know, trying really hard. To get the bugs' attention as they're slamming their noses um, or beaks, rather, into the tree, and I don't think anything was happening. It was kind of analogous to what Trump and Clinton are doing, basically, with with long beaks trying to, you know, kind of reminiscent of Pinocchio telling lies, or not not so much telling lies, but maybe not being as truthful and as forthcoming as they as it can be. Oh, you so think? It's a shame that it's a shame that both sides are kind of. In that in that realm, and I, I just kind of stopped and looked at it for a couple of seconds, and went, "Wow, that's kind of that's kind of interesting." And also realizing that the birds have a a lot less to worry about than we do, <laughs> from that standpoint. Oh, maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, well, uh, one of the things, uh, the good news of the day is yeah. mm-hmm. the yeah, good news here. The uh, article that you sent us 
Um, and you actually had in, in your subject line, good news, a Paris Agreement becomes official right. as climate change hits the U.S. state ballots. Right, yeah, and what, what really is happening with that, Mike, is all the different states, and I think I've talked about this before, is this is not going to get done from the top down. It's going to get done from the bottom up, and I uh, talked about that in my Loyola class on, on Wednesday, and then I'm, I'm going to talk about it again on Monday, is the lesson is really climate change and its impacts on humans. And I stress to the students that no matter how good of agreement you have from, you know, this collection of, of countries and no, how, no matter how good you have it from the federal government, and I think President Obama realized that, um, you, you got to start from the states and, and work its way outward. And then it's got to start from the local communities and kind of work its way outward and think of the United States as kind of like the EU, is where even though we're a, a, a partnership, um, each state has its own laws, each state has their own regulations, each state has their own, you know, issues when it comes to how they want to protect jobs um, and how they want to, well, not so much protect jobs, but then the senators and the U.S. congressmen want to protect their jobs to make sure that, um people are not being pushed out of their particular job at that time due to some form of regulation that's supposed to help the environment. It's, it's, I think anybody who is in that position, whether you're um, a liberal thinker or a conservative thinker, if someone comes along and says, look, um, I know that, that the stuff you're doing is great and it's, surprise, and it's providing money for your family, but we're going to eliminate your job because we've realized that your job is hurting the environment. Therefore, we're going to take your job away and we're going to retrain you. And hopefully in two years, you know, you'll have something better to help your family, you know, get by. I think anybody in that position would say, you know what, that's not a good idea. I don't like that. Whatever you're trying to impose on me, I disagree with. So no matter how you look at it, it's got to start from small and work its way outward. Uh, because this way, I think you can also kind of fine-tune um, how the climate treaty and how the Paris Agreement, you know, trickles down. So it comes from the top down, but to really get it enforced and to enact it, it's got to start from the bottom up. So to kind of put it in a nutshell, <clears throat> the Paris Agreement is really kind of now um, filtering through all the different states, and each state is kind of putting on their ballot. Um, and this is kind of a big thing. You really got to get into the weeds on this is how each individual state will be enacting certain laws that will enable the United States to do things that the United States agreed to do. And to kind of put it in a nutshell, it's almost like um, this is a little bit less robust than the Kyoto Protocol, yeah. which we realized was good, but it was bad for the big countries like China and in the United States because it literally told the United States, this is how you're going to do things. And we realized that that probably wasn't going to be the best way to go about it. So it basically said, well, we're going to try to do it this way, but we're going to leave it up to each country to figure out how they want to do it. And then that, when it's brought home, then you go to the States and you figure out how that's going to work out. And then hopefully everybody in the pot, um, it's kind of like a potluck dinner. Um, you tell everybody to bring something to the, to the, to the event, and hopefully they brought stuff to the event. So when it's all put on the table, you look at it and you go, okay, I think we have enough. Let's start eating. 
And that's basically what this agreement is doing right now. You know, what's interesting, the article you sent me, it, it talks about the intended nationally determined <laughs> contribution uh, or, right. or, or INDC for each country. And then they have a list right. of those. Right. And under, mm-hmm. under mm-hmm. sufficient, Bhutan, Costa Rica, Ethiopia, the Gambia, mm-hmm. or Gambia, Morocco. Gambia. That's, 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 mm-hmm. that's sufficient. Medium. Right. Is Brazil, right. China, European Union, India, Indonesia, Kazakhstan, Mexico, Norway, Peru, Philippines, Switzerland, and the United States. Inad- right. yeah, in- inadequate. Argentina, <laughs> Australia, <laughs> Canada. One. Who would have thought Canada? Chile, Japan, New Zealand, Russian Federation, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, South Africa, South Korea, Turkey, Ukraine, and United Arab Emirates. Wow. Yeah. As opposed to not yeah, rating. <laughs> people don't realize it, but um, uh, Australia is, is I think, the highest emitting country uh, per capita for CO2. <clears throat> and this is mainly due to the fact that um, the area surrounding uh, pretty much eastern sections of Australia, like Sydney, Melbourne, um, Brisbane, uh, they're very, very dependent on coal, and they also have a horrible mass transit system, uh, which means they rely on cars. So not only do they produce a lot of coal because, A, they have it, uh, but, B, they burn a lot of gasoline um, with a lot of car usage because, um, B, they don't have a very good mass transit system, and, C, the way that the you know, country of Australia is set up, um, it's kind of like a, you know, a California which is almost like if you look at San Francisco and L.A. and you kind of put, look at it in the mirror and reverse it, you have the east coast of Australia. So you have a lot of cities along the coast, and everybody basically lives you know, 30 to 40 miles west. Yeah. So Australia, while they have a very highly polluting country per capita, still the United States is the leader if you look at it on the larger scale. Um, but, yeah, those, 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 um, those countries in the inadequate, including Canada, which is – um, horrible from a standpoint of their tar sands. Ah, um, right. And, and then, yeah, and, and also Japan, because um, I just don't think Japan has it. It, it, it. Japan is almost like a, a mirror image of California without much thought of of trying to do things in a sustainable way, mainly due to the fact that you have 135 million people living on that island. Um, so you're, you're, you're basically just kind of burning through whatever you have to get – to get to get through tomorrow, um, so um, Japan is probably the the least adequate of of making changes because they rely on so little to produce so much. Um, and then, of course, you have the Russian Federation, which has their own problems. Yeah, well, you know, um, we, we, we yeah. won't even go yeah. down that road. Uh, and and we yeah. have, uh, I think, we've um, entered into perpetual autumn in Chicago. Right, this is never going to end. Right. Um, what do you, what do you mean? What do you mean by the by the fact that the weather we, is nice? And- we just, yeah, yeah exactly. Say, we just turned the corner there, Rick, on the conversation. I, I just, I just, I did a one <laughs> one eighty on you. We're, we're we're getting into weather now and climate. Uh, or actually, weather. Uh, yeah, no, I'm just saying oh, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm just saying there. Um, yeah, if you want to, you know, change a topic to something nicer and more. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Um, that that was the idea, yeah. Rick. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. This is. This is unbelievable. I mean, you look outside and you go, wait a minute, is this really the way November 5th mm-hmm. is supposed to be like? I mean, we made it up to, what, 70 degrees yesterday? Yeah. Normal high is 
54. You know, normal high for tomorrow is 53, and we're still going to be 70. And, Woo-hoo! you know, in addition yeah. to that, I, and I know in addition to that, um, we had two games where the Cubs played in the World Series, which doesn't happen. And then not only that, but they played in Cleveland, where it was in the low 70s, which it doesn't happen. Right. Um, so for the, for the first Sunday, we don't have to worry about the Cubs. We don't have to worry about the Bears, because the Bears are off. Um, and it's yes, they've been off all season. But um, bum. Okay, yeah, never mind. Literally able to go outside and enjoy the weather, not worry about anything except obviously what's going to happen on Tuesday. Uh, but yeah, this has been an amazing stretch of weather, and and it's going to continue for a couple more days before it cools off somewhat. And when you say cools off somewhat, what do you what do you mean? <laughs> well, it it does seem like that we're getting into temperatures probably more so lower fifties, upper upper 50s by Tuesday, and there's a big East Coast storm that develops. So we'll get cool, but that's only going to go Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and now it appears that by next Friday and Saturday, we get right back into the 60s and lower 70s. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Yeah. I'm not not kidding you. Oh my! We actually get right back into a very warm pattern uh, by this time next week. Wow. um, it. It doesn't go away anytime soon, I yeah. know. And, and again, I, I, was at, I was at the Wisconsin game yesterday with a couple of meteorologists, and during the boring part of the game, we were talking about the weather in parts of Russia and Siberia, and all they kept saying was, these are guys that are looking ahead, you know, one to two months down the road. They go, oh, yeah, when the pattern breaks, we're definitely going to go into winter, you know, very quickly here. And I'm like, yeah, but what about the next two weeks? They go, Oh, mild, just mild. It's going to stay that way. Wow. You um, know, I'd be interested. Yeah, so, I can't, I'm trying to imagine what it's like sitting in a football game with a group of meteorologists, okay? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. That's... Um, well, <laughs> it, you know, it, it's funny you mention that because we, we were looking at the fact that the kicker um, missed the ball or, or missed, missed the first field goal, and, and the wind was actually blowing. Um, it was actually, a, you know, a crosswind. And, and someone mentioned, yeah, but the wind on the field is actually less than what it is at the top of the stadium. So we were actually uh, looking at low-level wind shear as whether or not that impacted the, the <laughs> kicker. Um, and, then, and then when the guy punted the ball, we realized that the punt actually drifted a little bit more off to the right because he got it into the low-level jet stream in the middle of the field where there was probably more turbulence. Jet stream. As, as yeah, the jet stream. Yeah, and, yeah. The, and, the, and the air is off. thicker by the field and getting thinner as it rises and yeah, you know, all yeah. that stuff. All oh, that stuff. yeah, we were, we were doing all that stuff, Peg. So it, it was kind of fun. There were a couple of students in front of us from uh, from Wisconsin going, did you guys go to school at Wisconsin? They go, yeah. We, go, we said, yeah, they go, how oh, cool is that? And you're here at a football game. And we're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. it's, it's always amazing to go to those games when you have, you know, Northwestern and, um, uh, and Wisconsin people because it's, it's a nice blend of, of red and purple. But, uh, yeah, so the weather, even though we have a you know, cool off now and another one uh, by the end of next week and like maybe Saturday or Sunday, uh, we stay relatively warm and relatively dry for the next two weeks. So that's it, huh? I mean, we, 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 we talked all this time just so you could say that. That's it. I mean, I could have predicted that, I, I think, you know. Well, Relatively no, warm. I mean, okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, but, but okay, here, here's what I will ask you is sure. the, yeah. the storms that have been battering Alaska and coming up there, and right. the, uh, are, are right. they done or is that still happening? Is what's, what's keeping us no, in this no, pattern? No, no. There, there's, actually, no, there's actually a few more that looks like are coming straight off the chute from, from Japan, yeah. right across the North Pacific, um, into that area. It looks like it weakens a little bit, um, but from what I can see up until I would say probably the 
17th or 18th is when our pattern should begin to change a little bit. But until then, um, you know, basically above to near normal temperatures. And this time of the year, when you're in the 60s, you're now 10 degrees above normal with a normal high of 53. You know, by the end of the month, the normal high is down to 40. And here we are talking, we hit 70 yesterday, we'll hit 70 today. This, again, is about is, as good as I've ever seen around here in November. And you know what, is, is one thing about climate change is there are some good things about it. Take advantage of it now, um, and then we'll see how things change around here in about two or three weeks. But bottom line is this is good stuff, and enjoy it while it lasts. Exactly, because it's not going to be here. And, and the other thing is horticulturally, yeah. for those of you, mm-hmm. uh, you can still get stuff done mm-hmm. in your right. yards. Uh, oh, yeah. you, you know, if you've got vegetables and they're still growing, leave them. You know, leave them. I know people are, who are still harvesting tomatoes. Yep. Um, your kale is rocking, obviously, and the kale can withstand a few frosts as well uh, and other stuff. Yeah, uh, and Mike, I don't think we, we've had a, we have not had a frost yet here no. um, in the city, have we? No, and you can plant bulbs. I mean, normally they're right. saying they're saying right. by the, you know, you, you want to start winding down by the time you get to November. Well, that ground, that's got to be even warmer than than the air i mean it's just not going anywhere is it rick yeah yeah last last i checked the uh, soil temperatures were um pretty much right around 54 or 55 degrees which yeah. is amazing for this time and that's usually like in the first four inches so you know we cooled off back down to 44 for an overnight low and you'll do that now with you know you have sure. like 14 and a half hours of sunlight uh but still the fact that the lake water temperature is 57 um, and the fact that, and I was just reading a really great article from the Cleveland National Weather Service website uh, talking about the mild, um, the mild fall, is don't get too excited about the mild uh, lakefront temperatures because usually that indicates a much greater chance of heavy lake effect snow. So while we talked about that here in Chicago, they worry about it more in Cleveland yes. because obviously they're more downwind of the lake. So. You know, while you have it one way, you're definitely going to have it the other way. But it was kind of interesting to see how a different office kind of looked at the possibility of what happens when you have longer, uh, I should say, warmer uh, lake water temperatures, which we do, almost 8 degrees above normal right now. And, you know, to add insult to injury, the snow doesn't really pile up in Chicago the way it does in Cleveland and Buffalo and Cleveland. And Cleveland just lost the World Series, and they'll probably get slammed (laughs) by some kind of snowstorm. It's just yeah, yeah. I I don't know if that's going to happen, but uh, yeah, lake effects snow typically is much more of a problem there early in the year than it is for us. Yeah, uh, yeah. So if, if if you need me to go into details, near seventy today, uh, mid sixties tomorrow, low sixties on Tuesday, and then probably in the fifties around here as we head into Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Um, and the thing about it is, it's not like we get real cold; we just get not as warm. Uh, and again, you know, as I mentioned, normal high is 53. We may be close to that on Wednesday, but then a little bit of a cool shot comes in here for Friday and Saturday. But again, it looks like back up to above normal temperatures by Sunday and Monday of next week. So uh, a nice kind of swing up and down. But um, uh, and then notice, Mike, I didn't much mention much about rain. Very dry weather through that time. Ah, so, well, you know, and another, that, another, another good way of, of, of getting out into yard and do what you need to do. Well, yeah, you know, and folks lose track of that at this time of year when it gets dry. Right. Um, if you right. Plant, planted a tree this year or a shrub this year, as we head into the winter, keep it hydrated, mm-hmm. and especially when the temperatures are in the 60s, and um, and uh, as Rick said, it's dry water. 
you got you got to keep watering because the roots are still mm-hmm. growing and if once right. once the right. ground ground freezes the, the plant can't take that up anymore so now is the time to get it done so it's that's something to remind people of all right Rick, yeah. all right oh. mike and one final thing yep. um, weather across the country on tuesday should be good everybody worries about how weather affects right. people's ability to go out and vote um i don't know there's really nothing coming down the pike that suggests that we could be anything in, you know, any sort of weather except for maybe some rain across the deep south and maybe a couple of sprinkles here on Tuesday. And, of but course, that, I, I already voted, so what yeah, is in the second my vote? Me yeah. too. We've yeah. all voted here. And, you know, 30 million people have already voted in this country. And uh, I don't know my, how many – most of the uh, early voting has stopped. Uh, but, uh, you know, a lot of people voted uh, ahead of time. So that's a good thing. Uh, so we'll see. Yep, yep, yep. All right, Rick, um, you know what? Um, um, we'll be commiserating or celebrating on Wednesday, one way or the other. Yeah, one way or another, I'll still be in the fetal position up until about 9 a.m. 9 p.m. <laughs> okay, okay. Take a photo. I want to send it to me, and I'll post it on Facebook. Sounds good. All right, talk to you next week, guys. All right, take, take care. care. Rick. Bye-bye. Uh, we've given away one of those tickets to uh, Bill McKibben. We still ha- or one pair. We still have another pair left um so jackie got herself uh, a pair of tickets so uh, what was it thursday or wednesday 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 at uh, six o'clock at the um, down on clark at francis w parker school auditorium all right so you can still send us an email or a tweet or a facebook message uh and then you can say no no that's not what i wanted (laughs) Uh, darn it so much for my oh I wanted this one. So then, then you can say, Thanks, Mike Novak. Okay, that's what I want. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, my new toy. Okay. Except I have to learn how to work it. Uh, so, is um, oh, yeah, before we go, did you want to say anything about yeah, your, ma- your, your misfortune? It's time to go. We're in oh, overtime. On. You don't want to talk about your misfortune at nope, all? Nope, nope. Okay. We're in overtime. All right, we're not. You're not going to the emergency room, or no, anything. No, I'm not going to the emergency room. Okay. I, oh. I, I had a run in with the door, or a walk in with the door <laughs> in a dark hallway. That's what they say. That's always the excuse. Oh yeah, I, wa- I walked into a door. I walked into yeah. a door. Got a little, a little sniffling there too, because that. <laughs> well, have yeah. you been hanging out with Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, we- hey, there we go. <laughs> See, now you just made my day. Uh, I want to thank everybody who was on the show today. Wow, jam-packed show, starting with Tom Shepard from the Southeast Environmental Task Force, Steve Horn, research, I'm sorry, uh, freelance investigative journalist with the Smog Blog, the Food Tank people, Lisa Moon and Shana Harris. We'll have more on Food Tank Summit next week. Rick DeMaio Weather, Peggy, as always, thank you. Go green or go home. Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much.